Say You Want a Revolution, Episode 4, read for you by the author, Chapter 46. Over the next two weeks, Donnie continued to take the lead with Jackson's training. They spent four days on weight pile concentrating on specific muscle groups, and the other three days on the track. Alternately, in the evenings, they were either on a stair-stepper, pull-up bar, or walking through a series of martial arts techniques that included Shotokan karate, jiu-jitsu, and kendo. No matter how hard Donnie pushed, Jackson responded. His respect for the man's tenacity grew exponentially. So, the days ticked by, and now on Sunday morning, Donnie felt as if it had been much more than two weeks since he had last seen Celeste. Certainly, they had spoken several times, but they were careful not to talk too much about anything important as the phones were monitored and recorded. Nevertheless, she had said enough to pique his interest. Now she was coming to visit, and hinted she had news. That alone made Donnie both curious and concerned. He lay awake in his bunk, dressed, and waiting for his name to be called to the visiting room. His leg bounced nervously. You okay? asked Jackson. He was reclining in his own bunk, but he could feel the bed shaking in time with Donnie's nervous machinations. Yeah, I'm just a little anxious. Celeste indicated she had some information. Jackson's stomach lurched with the news. He couldn't think of anything he hadn't told Donnie, yet he also couldn't push back the sinking feeling that something was wrong. I'm sure it's nothing, he offered. She probably cranked up about the whole revelation concerning your attorney and how the system works. Yeah, you're probably right. He was only half believing his own response. Jackson swung his feet onto the floor and cleared his throat. So, coach, should I run, hit the bike, or the stair-stepper? Jackson hoped the question would lower Donnie's anxiety. None of the above. We're resting the next three days to allow our muscles to heal. During that time, we're going to work on targeting. Oh, you got us a spot on the firing range, Jackson quipped. Lucky for you, I don't need a range. What I do is like art. It's 90% preparation and 10% execution. Pardon the pun. Yeah, lucky for me. The public address system interrupted their banter. Inmate Donald Beck to visiting. Inmate Anthony Jackson to visiting. Inmate... Jackson looked up at Donnie with a genuine surprise on his face. Did you know I was having a visit? Donnie shook his head in the negative. Hurry and get dressed, I'm going over. Jackson started moving quickly. Chapter 47 Donnie felt a flash of concern at finding Celeste and Joanne together in the visiting room, but the unease quickly gave way to much deeper anxiety. From across the room, he could see Celeste's wounded expression and her trembling hands. At the same time, Joanne's pale and expressionless mask seemed eerily flat and statue-like. Celeste's eyes were red-rimmed and swollen. He tried to hurry across the room without drawing attention. However, Donnie could hardly take his eyes from the two women. Celeste threw herself into his arms when he approached the table and chairs where the women were seated. Donnie felt her body trembling. As he glanced over her shoulder for a hint of Joanne's distress, a single tear streaked her cheek. What is it? What's wrong? whispered Donnie. Where's Jackson? Celeste countered without answering. He's coming, 
He wasn't expecting a visit, so he had to brush his teeth and get dressed. He'll be here in a minute. What is it? It's my dad. He's been hurt, whispered Joanne. Now the tears began to flow down her cheeks unabated. Donnie and Celeste felt helpless to provide for any real consolation. Celeste did the best thing she could. She grabbed Joanne's hand and rubbed it gently in the hopes of offering at least a little comfort. It seemed to work, and Joanne wrestled her emotions enough to corral the tears. Two very long minutes later, Jackson entered and approached the guard's desk with his identification card extended. Joanne hurried to his arms, meeting him when he was five or six feet shy of the table. Jackson lovingly held her and felt the convulsions within her as she fought to hold back sobs and tears. Jackson stroked her long blonde hair, comforting her like a father would comfort a distressed daughter. Both Donnie and Celeste choked back their own tears because of the anguish and the sentiment. Slowly, Jackson and Joanne made their way back to the table. Donnie noticed the guard's eyes were riveted on them. Once they were seated, Donnie spoke consolingly but firmly. We're being watched. Dial the emotion down a notch or they'll insist that you leave and come back later. Jackson responded softly and soothingly. Why don't you girls go to the bathroom for a minute? Then get us a couple of sodas. We'll talk when you get back. Joanne hiccuped quietly as she struggled to bring herself under control. She slowly made her way to the bathroom with Celeste in tow. Donnie and Jackson sat next to each other at separate tables, patiently awaiting the girls' return. Eventually, the guard's scrutiny shifted to incoming visitors. A couple of minutes later, Joanne and Celeste returned to join them. Joanne's face was rinsed of her makeup and her cheeks were splotchy and red from her tears. However, her breathing and demeanor had returned to normal. Jackson instructed her to take several swallows of her drink before asking her to explain. When she began to speak, Joanne's posture began to shrink as if she were only seconds away from collapsing back into an emotional heap. Celeste took her hand again, hoping it would give her strength. The gesture made Donnie swell with pride. Joanne gulped down the thickness in her throat and spoke in a low voice. Uncle Anton was stabbed last weekend. Apparently, this penitentiary where they put him, Hazleton, has been an experiment in integration. They shipped in a bunch of really bad guys from all over the country. There are Chris, Scorpions, MS-13, Chinese gangs, Baltimore gangs, and Aryans. The Aryans told my dad to either join them, pay $1,000 a month, or die. Dad told him to screw themselves, and they stabbed him. The last word came out in a choked wail, and Celeste quickly pulled Joanne to her shoulder to quiet her cries. The guard gave them a curious glance, then went back to checking in the next visitor. Is he dead? Jackson asked with cool detachment. Joanne only shook her head no and chewed on her lower lip, which trembled uncontrollably. Jackson's demeanor changed to that of someone very much in control. Joanne, look at me. He leaned forward. His face was angled and hard. His eyes burnt with a furious intensity. No more crying. I need to know exactly what happened. Start with how badly he's injured and work your way back to what happened. Only what you know, not what you think you know. 
Joanne nodded like a little girl. Her eyes were wide and almost fearful as she exchanged Jackson's stare. All we know is that he was stabbed in the back with a homemade plastic knife. It pierced his right kidney and was broken off in his back. Uncle Anton was rushed into surgery at a local hospital. They took his kidney and put him back in the penitentiary the next day. Supposedly, he's in a glass treatment cell in the medical wing and we can't see him. Other than that, we don't know anything. Joanne started to shrink into herself once again. Joanne, look at me. Jackson demanded her attention. Anton can live with one kidney. Besides, he's a tough guy. I know he'll make it. Now listen, when you get home, you and your mom have to call the Regional Bureau of Prisons office and raise hell. Demand a copy of the incident report, medical records, and a duty roster. Find out who was working that day. Demand information about the guards, the medical staff, the emergency response team, and everything about their response time. Make them understand that you're going to sue the crap out of them for incompetence. Have your attorney call. He can demand a visit. Make sure he gets involved in the threats. Let him handle the intimidation. When they schedule an attorney visit, make sure the attorney takes you along as a paralegal. I want your dad back in general population as soon as possible. I want you to pay the Aryans $1,000 a month. I also want your dad to hire five of the biggest guys as bodyguards whenever he's on the compound. Tell him to pay them each 200 a month, to take turns as his shadow. Tell him it's part of my plan, and tell him don't screw it up. I'll get him details as soon as I can. Joanne's eyes were clear now. Jackson's intensity and razor-like focus had been a calming influence. She nodded. Do you have a plan to get? Jackson held up his hand to silence her. He nodded almost imperceptibly. I just need to get a few more details worked out. His eyes betrayed the statement, and both Donnie and Celeste could tell Jackson's assurance was a lie. Jackson turned toward Celeste and Donnie and exchanged a serious glance. Celeste, I hate to ask you to do this, but could you go home with Joanne again? I want her to call a friend of mine, Dominic Hall. I want Dominic to come and tell you everything he knows about Hazleton, including the layout, yard, movement requirements, and anything else he can think that's relevant. Then both of you come back tomorrow. Tell me what you learn, and I'll tell Donnie what I'm planning. Then we can all talk from the same script. I'm sorry, it's a lot to ask. Celeste held both hands in front of her. Jackson, I don't want any part of whatever scheme you're planning. However, Joanne is my friend too. If I can help her get through this without getting myself twisted up, I'll do what I can. But I'm not getting myself into trouble for you or anyone else. Jackson nodded contritely. Celeste, please believe that I could never live with getting you into something that would harm you. I swear on everything I love, I'm not getting you involved. Celeste studied him for a moment. Then she looked at Joanne, who sat silently, chewing her lip. I believe you. After another thirty minutes of conversation, Celeste and Joanne rose to leave. Donnie felt a strange, uneasy feeling wash over him. It was reminiscent of the times he climbed into a tree stand with a sniper rifle to kill a target. 
Once they were in the tree, there was no turning back until the target was extinguished. His mind offered a faint memory scent of the forest. He feared that if he closed his eyes, he would hear the rustling of the leaves and smell the gun oil. Chapter 48 The afternoon was overcast with low-hanging clouds, and the dorms were oppressive and more gloomy than normal. It looked as if it could rain any minute. So following an impromptu 12.30 count, Donnie and Jackson were content to just amble around the quad and stay close to the buildings. Besides, neither man seemed to possess the energy to walk all the way back to the track at the far end of the compound. The sky matched their moods. The girls are probably back at the beach, Jackson offered conversationally. Now you want to tell me what they're getting into and uh, why they couldn't stay here and hear it from you? Jackson stopped and turned to study Donnie's face. First, Dominic is a good friend of Anton's. He did 15 years. He started in Atlanta on a 30-year sentence, but he gave back 15 on appeal. They shipped him from the Atlanta Penitentiary to the medium here at Petersburg, and then they transferred him to the low. A year and a half before he got out, they sent him across the street to the camp. After he was in the camp for three weeks, they shipped him to a satellite work camp in Hazleton to work on one of the facility activation teams. That's not really normal, but after the general contractor went belly up, they scrambled to assemble a group that could go up there and finish the work that needed to be done so they could open the buildings. Dominic's a welder, so they needed him inside the penitentiary to weld the bolts that secured the beds and desks to the floor. Like I said, they were looking for guys with construction experience to go up there and do the grunt work so they could get the place ready for the high-risk dudes. Dom was there when the guys were shipped in from Beaumont, Lewisburg, and Leavenworth. It didn't take long before they started killing each other. He wrote and told me that the place was on lockdown at least once a month because of murders, assaults on guards, or just because of general mayhem. I was hoping Joanne and her mom could give Celeste a good picture of Anton's situation. Why, Jackson? What does it matter what Celeste thinks? She loves you, Donnie, and she doesn't want anything or anybody to hurt you ever again. I respect that and I can't ask you to do something she's going to be 100% against. It could harm your relationship, and I couldn't live with that, especially if it was all on my account. The first thing on Donnie's mind was a sarcastic response, but he checked himself when he saw the sincerity in Jackson's eyes. So Dominic's going to put the fear of God into Celeste, and she's going to want to do anything she can to help. Is that it? A cold, blank expression settled over Donnie's face. No, Dominic is going to tell her the plan. What plan? The plan to break me out of here, and then the subsequent plan to break Anton out of Hazleton. Between Dominic and Joanne's mom, Maria, Celeste will know everything we've planned. While they're getting up to speed, I'll explain all the details to you. After you hear the facts, and if either of you says no, I'll find another way. However, the news about Anton being attacked means I have about six weeks instead of six months. I can't let him die there. Donnie studied Jackson again for several seconds before speaking. Jackson, before you tell me the plan, tell me one more time 
why you want to be a martyr in this revolution of yours. Jackson placed his hand on Donnie's chest and gazed deeply into his eyes. You never thought you were destined for greatness, and you never expected it until it dropped in your lap. In fact, you stumbled through your early life looking for direction and meaning until you found the Marines. That organization defined you, Donnie. Well, you probably think I'm crazy, but my whole life has been built around avoiding my purpose in life. What you don't know about me is that I used to be a very religious person. Not in my early years, but later. As a matter of fact, when I was young, if you'd known me, you'd have probably bet I'd wind up in prison before my 18th birthday. As a kid, I was on my own, and I did whatever I needed to get by. If it meant stealing a car, I stole it. If it meant selling dope, I sold it. I did it all, and I was good at it. I was good enough so that by the time I was 17, I had my own apartment and a new car. When I turned 18, I was married and well on my way toward being what I thought was a success. I got a real job in retail and quickly worked my way up to the position of menswear fashion buyer. I really felt like I had the world by the tail. By the time I was 20, I was a father and I had another child on the way, but I was already burned out. I realized I didn't want to chase success in business. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew what I was doing was the wrong thing. That's when I started seeking God. I started visiting churches, mostly charismatic and Pentecostal denominations. So in the course of a year, I learned a lot about the spiritual realm. My wife and my friends all thought I was nuts, and I guess I was what you might call a Jesus freak. That's how it all started. What does that mean? That's how what started. I thought you stayed in business, interrupted Donnie. Ultimately, I did. However, before I made that decision, God showed me a vision. A vision? More than a hint of skepticism crept into Donnie's voice. Yet yeah, one night, I was in bed. i just finished reading a couple of chapters in the Bible, and my wife and our daughters were already sleeping soundly. I switched off the light that was sitting on the nightstand and started to inch down under the covers when the wall in front of me began to smoke. I set up hastily, thinking that there was a fire or short in one of the plugs, and I was looking for a flame. Instead, I saw a picture of me emerging from what I can only describe as a mist. I was walking across the desert, wearing a robe and carrying a staff. As I watched myself climb a series of switchbacks up to a mesa that overlooked the desert, I felt completely disconnected from the world around me. In the vision, I walked into the middle of a flat plateau. I knelt and began to pray. After a few minutes, several others joined me and we formed an impromptu circle. Eventually, I rose and walked to the edge of the cliff where I extended my staff out over the ground below. The desert was immediately filled with a sea of people. As I watched, the staff in my hand turned into a sword. My robe fell away, and I was fully dressed in a suit of battle armor. Then I threw myself off the precipice and virtually floated into the swarm of people who parted a path and fell in behind me as I charged across the desert. I knew it was my job to lead them, and they followed me into what appeared to be a battlefront that was at some distance in the horizon. 
As quickly as it came, the vision and the smoke dissipated. I was sitting upright in the bed. I looked at the clock and realized 30 minutes had passed. The next morning, I resolved to put it out of my mind. I buckled down at work and never looked back. I never sought to assume any position of leadership in the church or anywhere else for that matter. In truth, I even stopped going to spirit-filled churches, instead opting for more sedate traditional churches that didn't encourage visions or prophecy or overly active faith. I've been running from my calling to lead a revolution all of my life. And now I'm at a place where nothing else matters. If I ignore the revolution, I will die here with nothing to show for anything. If I get Anton out, he'll fund the revolution, even though he's never heard a single word about my vision. If I die trying, at least I will have been faithful to what I believe I've been chosen to do in my life. Donnie, this is as much about me as it's about Anton. Don't you see? I've got to try. Donnie rubbed his hands across his chin, trying to shake the eerie sensation bubbling up inside that confirmed an agreement to Jackson's interpretation of the vision. It was almost surreal, but Donnie could see the scenes Jackson described in his mind's eye. What's the plan? For the next two hours, Jackson walked Donnie around the compound to show him locations, equipment, and resources that could be used to facilitate his upcoming escape. He explained every detail with exacting precision. Then he only spent about 20 minutes explaining how he planned to get Anton out of Hazleton. In truth, he admitted he would have to spend some time doing a detailed recognizance, as he lacked sufficient information to make Anton's escape a reality. Donnie and Jackson returned to the dorm in silence. Donnie chewed over all the details, turning each step over and over in his mind. Chapter 49 Donnie and Jackson woke early. It was shortly after six, and they were dressed and ready. They sat in their cubicle, quiet and pensive while they waited. Neither man seemed able to relax as the minutes slowly ticked. When they were finally called to the visiting room after ten o'clock morning count, they could hardly make their way to the inmates' entrance. Joanne and Celeste were sitting together. Their discomfort was obvious. Both Celeste's and Joanne's eyes were red-rimmed with emotion. Donnie knew by their condition that whatever Celeste had heard about Anton weighed heavily on her throughout the night. When he finally reached the table and chairs where the women were sitting, Donnie hugged Celeste and held her a little longer than usual. Without thinking about it, he squeezed her a little tighter. Celeste seemed willing to give more than she received, and for a moment... Donnie felt himself slip free of the bonds of prison. Joanne and Jackson exchanged only one short kiss on the cheek and a quick hug. They sat somewhat uncomfortably as Celeste and Donnie extricated themselves from their embrace. Once they were all seated, Celeste's gaze settled on Jackson. She leaned toward him slightly before speaking. Do you think you can get him out of that place? Jackson shook his head affirmatively without diverting his glance. If I can execute the plan to get me out, I'm 100% sure I can get Anton out. Celeste turned to Donnie. Can you get him out of here? 
Shorty, G2, and maybe one more guy can get him out. But I'll need you to put Joanne in touch with them. She'll need to say exactly what I tell her and give them exactly what they say they need. Johnny, if anyone gets caught, it can't get linked back to visitors. Tell me. I'll tell them. Celeste replied suddenly. Donnie thought about that for a moment. No, Celeste. Jackson has already put some safeguards in place. It has to be Joanne, and she'll have to sell it as if my life depends on it. Plus, she will probably have to give them $5,000 apiece if they agree. They'll likely want another 15000 each when the job is done. So, are they going to do it for you or the money? Donnie half smiled. They'll do it for the money, but it will make them feel better if they can tell themselves they're doing it for me. It lightened the mood, and everyone chuckled nervously. Donnie began to lay out the first few steps of the plan. Once the details were out of the way, the conversation shifted to idle chatter. Before long, the correctional officer at the desk announced that visits would be over in ten minutes. The goodbyes were not as strained as before, and Donnie felt as if the tension that was present earlier had somehow lifted. At least, he reasoned, the ragtag group of friends had a common and driving purpose. Soon and very soon, Jackson would be free. Chapter 50 The next few days were focused on an intensive twice-a-day regimen of exercises. Four days on the weight pile, then three days on the track that alternated between ten-mile runs and rigorous calisthenics. Donnie was actually surprised at how quickly Jackson's body responded to the training, either out of necessity or good genetics. Whatever the case, he was rapidly putting on muscle, and Donnie was pleased to see Jackson's dedication. In truth, he was even more delighted that his own body was responding so well. The effects of the surgery had all but disappeared. Donnie snatched the 60-pound weights from the rack and carried them to a nearby bench. Okay, one more set of seated shoulder presses, then we'll call it a night. Jackson didn't respond. His focus was on the man that was approaching from the far end of the weight pile. Jackson knew the man, yet they seldom spoke, except to pass the time of day. He was huge, probably 270 pounds, but all muscle. According to the gossip on the compound, Wash was in the 600 club, meaning he could bench 600 pounds or more. From the looks of his arms, there was little doubt. His dark, ashy skin and gap-toothed smile made him look disarming, but the way he carried himself left little doubt that the man could do harm if necessary. Hey, Jackson. Hey, Wash, how you doing? I'm good. I just want to introduce myself to your friend Donnie. I'll let you know whatever you got kicking off, I won't in. I don't know what you're talking about, Wash. We got nothing going. We're just working out. Wash moved to the bench where Donnie was sitting and extended his hand. I'm Washington Pickens, but everybody calls me Wash. I've been watching you two for the past couple of weeks. You're either working out like a couple of guys will get released in the next month or so, or you're working out because you're getting yourselves out. If you're going over the fence, I want to go with you. Jackson was shaking his head. Wash, it's not what you think. Wash stared hard at Jackson. I ain't stupid. I see what I see. 
I've been down for 20 years and another 20 to do, but I don't belong in here. All I did was, oh, never mind. I just thought I'd ask if I'd go with you guys. I see how it is. Donnie spoke up without moving. How's that? You're a couple of white guys, and you don't want people of color ruining your business. Donnie stood to his feet. I spent eight years in the Marines. I fought beside so many different kinds of people, and I can't even begin to tell you what color or race they were. They were Marines. In fact, if I were to hypothetically enlist someone to help me, two of the guys would be African American, because they're proven they are my brothers, and I trust them with my life. So please, tell me your story. Why don't you belong here? Wash sat on the bench. Donnie vacated. I'm from Washington, D.C. That's why I was named Washington. I got a brother named Decatur and a sister named Florence. So I guess you can kind of figure out how my family made their way north. Anyways, when I was in my mid-twenties, I decided to create my own little business, so I started a boxing gym. I had several young guys who were serious about training, and a couple of them even had some potential. So I created different workout regimens to accommodate their schedules and abilities. One kid, Terrence, he was really good. His student at Howard University carrying a full load, and he worked afternoons and dinner hours at Ben's Diner. So I used to meet him when he got off work and we would either run or skip rope or spar one-on-one. -on -one. This was a Thursday, maybe Friday evening. I picked him up with a plan to run five miles. I mapped out a course that took us down North Capitol to Pennsylvania Avenue, up 9th Street and back across Massachusetts Avenue. We were doing fine until we turned up 9th Street and two cops started chasing us and screaming, get down on the ground. We kept running. Sure, they wasn't talking to us. Then we crossed K Street. We were surrounded by police with their guns drawn. Now, Terrence, he's pretty loyal, Howard. So while he's slowly kneeling, he starts reciting some chapter and verse about probable cause and some such. Well, one of them cops comes up behind him and cracks him on the head with a nightstick. I mean, I saw it actually kick the boy's head in. And he starts mumbling and falling forward. And I just saw red. I was on my feet in a second. I picked that cop up and threw him through a plate glass window. Then I started beating on those cops without a care. I figured I'd die for sure. I don't know who hit me, but I woke up in jail a couple days later. And when I went before the magistrate, I found out two black men robbed a liquor store on F Street. Since I was running and since we was black, we was guilty. In the end... He found out it wasn't us, but Terrence was still dead, and six police officers were seriously hurt. So I went to trial for criminal assault. I got six years for each of their cases to be served consecutively. As Washington, D.C. is a federal jurisdiction, I originally went to Lorton. When they closed Lorton, I was shipped to Petersburg. Until that day, I never did anything against the law. I never hurt anyone, and I never plan on hurting anyone. I watched that man kill Terrence, and I snapped. So if you're going, I want to go with you. i got to get out of here, even if it kills me. Donnie was shaking his head in disgust at the man's story.
If there's any way we can help you, we'll try and help you out. The men didn't say anything else. They merely picked up their gear and headed to the dorm. On Wednesday night, Donnie appropriated a push broom with a removable wooden handle. Then, after 7 o'clock, when most of the inmates in their housing section were either in the TV room or out somewhere on the compound, Donnie began the process of showing Jackson how to sight a sniper rifle. He quietly began the recitation. Breathe. Target. Breathe. Aim. Exhale. Fire. The two men spent an hour each night thereafter repeating the process. Another hour was spent on Kendo using the same multi-purpose weapon as a sword or parrying staff. Just before the ten o'clock nightly count, Donnie rehearsed pistol sighting, firing stances, and attack procedures. Saturday night was the first time Jackson challenged Donnie's instructions. Why the Kendo stuff? Do you think I'm really going to get into a sword fight? He was obviously frustrated by the repetitive thrust and parries. Donnie checked the door, which was open to the hall beyond, before he leaned forward to whisper a reply. Keep your voice down. Jackson looks chastened in response. You're going to be a killer, right? Jackson nodded. Sometimes you can do silently that which is impossible to do otherwise. My job is to prepare you to be a killing machine. If someone gets a drop on you, there's a possibility you won't be able to target with your rifle, and your pistol might be too loud. Kendo or close combat techniques are crucial. What about silencers? Challenged Jackson. First, they alter your aim. Secondly, they don't work well. And even if they do, there's still a noise. Swords and knives are quiet. Next week, you'll learn how to use a knife and how to handle a knife in a fight. I know how to fight. I've seen you, Jackson. I'm aware you have some skills, but once I add mine to yours, you'll have even more. I'm trying to give you every weapon I have in my arsenal. If you don't want it, say the word. The bite in Donnie's voice was obvious. No, I'm sorry. You're right. I need everything you can give me. I'm just a little tired. Jackson countered. Donnie studied Jackson for a moment and smiled broadly. Thank you, Jesus, he said as he looked toward the ceiling. I didn't think I was ever going to wear you out. And I never thought I'd hear that come out of your mouth. Both men laughed while they gathered up their gear so they could get in the showers after the count. Chapter 51 It was a week later that Celeste returned to visit. This time she came alone, and Jackson waited anxiously in the unit while Donnie and Celeste shifted and sorted through the details of the plan. The wait was almost unbearable. So Jackson ultimately resolved to run the track until his musings over the particulars and possible snags were worked out. The exercise didn't help, and the mental churning didn't subside. Thus Jackson had finished his exercise, showered, and now was sitting on his bunk, strung as tightly as piano wire when Donnie finally came back into the room. While Donnie undressed and put on his sweats, Jackson felt like he was coming out of his skin. Well, what did she say? Donnie raised a hand. Not here. After the count, we'll take a walk. I'll tell you everything. He studied Jackson's face and realized the suggestion yielded more anxiety than confidence. Everything is good. It's working. But let's not talk about it here. 
Jackson breathed a sigh of relief. The dissipation of tension was obvious, and Donnie noticed the relaxation of Jackson's shoulders as he sat lightly on his bunk again. The next hour passed quickly as the men exchanged information about how they had spent their day. Both understood the superfluous conversation was designed to provide cover for the information Jackson truly wanted to hear. Once the count was underway, Jackson's stress level was once again on the uptick. While Donnie and Jackson sat on the bleachers, Donnie recounted his conversation with Celeste. Celeste put Shorty and G2 in touch with Joanne. They refused to use their real names and insisted they should be referred to only as S and J. They further demanded a face-to-face -face meeting at a remote spot on a secluded stretch of sand near the north shore of Virginia Beach. That meeting was scheduled to take place sometime after 2 o'clock this afternoon, so that should have occurred when Celeste and I were in the visiting room. According to the preliminary conversation with Celeste, a $5,000 down payment was deemed acceptable. However, they insisted on two motorcycles and black leathers, perhaps in anticipation of what would be expected. They told Celeste that bikes and leathers would be in addition to the fee and have to be delivered one week prior to the date. They are given additional specifications to Joanne today. I'm sure she's going to have to pay for grappling gear, rope launch, and tranquilizer guns. Likewise, she'll still have to arrange for a ride or truck rental and make sure that it's parked in a predetermined location. When the job is done, they each want an additional 10000 They said they'll get you out into the location where the truck is parked. Then you're on your own. Just like that, and you trust them? Are they really going to do this? Donnie studied Jackson for a beat. He was searching for one last sign that maybe he shouldn't let this whole thing move forward, wondering if there was any possibility that Jackson was setting him up. Yet there was nothing that spiked his warning meter or gave him a reason for concern. Jackson, these guys are my brothers. They're mercenaries and they're trained killers. They're also thrill-seekers and they're angry I'm in prison. I've trusted them with my life many times, and I trust them with your life. The fact they're getting paid is making the job all the more palatable. They're accustomed to risk. If they told Celeste they're in, then they're in 100%. Jackson nodded his head. He was distracted by his thoughts. Let's head back. I need to call Maria and have Joanna come see me. I'm going to need to get a lot of timetable details worked out. If Anton is out of medical, I'm also going to see if Maria can go see him tomorrow. I need some details about his daily schedule. Can you be able to go in two weeks? Donnie was stunned momentarily by the question. A two-week schedule for Jackson marked the finality of what was going to happen. Donnie nodded affirmatively. Yeah, I'll have you ready in two weeks, Sunday night at 8 o'clock. That's when you should plan to go. Why 8 p.m.? Pressed Jackson. Based on my observation, that time frame presents the lowest staffing level. Donnie pointed to a pickup truck parked next to the warehouse at the far end of the compound just outside the fence. There's only one perimeter guard, a female CO, and she sits there dozing most of the time. I'm thinking S&G will take her out with a tranquilizer, get you out of the compound, which will take five to seven minutes, and then you'll have just about a two-hour head start before the count. What if someone checks on the perimeter guard? Oh, I'm sure they will after 15 or 20 minutes. 
However, they'll discover her unconscious and shuttle her off to the hospital. My guess is they'll suspect a stroke before they consider anything else. They won't know about you until they count. Jackson focused on the truck in the distance. It's all I need. A two-hour head start. Chapter 52 The details pertaining to Jackson's escape plan were shuttled back and forth through a series of visits that started on Thursday night and extended through the following weekend. Celeste had been there to ensure Donnie could confirm all the elements of the plan to Joanne. She, in turn, carried the conversation back to Shorty and G2. By Sunday night, one week before the extraction deadline, everything was in place. The requisite money and information seamlessly changed hands. However, as the date closed in, Celeste once again voiced her concerns about her and Donnie's perceived or implied involvement. After Jackson and Joanne left the visiting room, Donnie could read the concern etched on her face. What is it? What's on your mind? If they get caught, how do you know they won't implicate us? Donnie squeezed Celeste's hand reassuringly. It was just the two of them seated in a crowd of 60 or 70 others who were unwittingly circling them like covered wagons on the prairie while they huddled at their customary table. In the first place, Shorty and G2 won't get caught. I know from personal experience they can get in and out of here without being detected. Secondly, if by some fluke they do get caught, they'll never give anyone my name. Thirdly, I'm sure there is no trace back to us. The cell phone you used to call Joanne is registered to an unsuspecting palm reader in Virginia Beach who will swear her identity has been stolen. I never called Shorty or G2 directly, did you? Celeste shook her head. No, I gave the number to Joanne and she contacted them on her phone. I've never even met them. Do you trust Joanne Maria? Celeste thought about that for a moment, then nodded. They'd never tell on me. Okay, then. I'm 100% certain that Jackson, Shorty, and G2 will never breathe my name for any reason if they're caught. I trust them completely. Besides, this isn't going to fail. It's probably one of the easiest missions Shorty and G2 have ever taken upon themselves. Celeste studied Donnie's face for a moment, then sank against his chest. If you're okay with it, then I'm okay with it. Donnie shifted his gaze to the CO, who was giving them a stern look. Better sit up, honey. We're getting an evil eye. Celeste reluctantly pushed away from the comfort of Donnie's shoulder and smiled at him contentedly. If you are ever worried about me telling, I can give you a tip on how to ensure my complete silence. She stated while smirking playfully. How's that? Donnie was trying to play into the spirit of her taunting. You could just marry me. I can't be compelled to testify against my husband. She stated it very boldly. However, as soon as the words were out of her mouth, a nervous shift took place in her eyes, and Donnie noticed it immediately. Unable to control himself, he felt his own eyes well with tears. His voice rasped as if it was almost ready to fail him. Celeste, if you're still around when I get out, if you can wait. Donnie's voice hitched. I'm not trying to even ask you to wait. 
it wouldn't be right. However, if by some miracle you're anywhere I can find you when I'm finally free, there are only two things I want. First, I want to kiss you for ten minutes straight without worrying that somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder. Then I want to whisk you away and marry you so I can spend the rest of my life learning everything I can about you and what you want from a relationship. It isn't fair to say this, but I've never known a love like this before, and I've never had an ache inside of me like the ache I feel when I think about you. Donnie stopped suddenly and looked out the window. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I promised myself I wouldn't. Celeste placed her hand on the side of his face to silence him. Did you mean it? Donnie nodded, but avoided her eyes. Then I'm going to hold you to it she said, smiling broadly. Donnie couldn't fight back the smile that matched Celeste. A few minutes later, when they left the visiting room, they both floated from the room with the hope and weightlessness of love. Donnie fantasized about going over the fence with Jackson, but the anguish of a life on the run quickly sobered his mood. Chapter 53 Following Janice's instruction not to interrupt a very important telephone call that was causing David a bit of panic, Frank entered the boss's inner sanctum as quietly as possible. He could see the distress etched over David's face and red blotches rising out from under his collar and spreading to his cheeks. Frank stood silently while David responded to whomever was on the line. Mr. Garcia, there really wasn't much to investigate. Once Mr. Beck agreed to the plea... David was silenced by an interruption on the other end of the line. Frank's stomach churned acid at the mention of Donnie's name. I assume his attorney. Yes, Mr. Garcia, that's the same Frank Salvatore. David was interrupted without the benefit of answering. I'll get with Mr. Salvatore. I'll find out exactly what discussions were held and what avenues were pursued during the investigation. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The President of the United States. The mere mention of the President of the United States from this one-sided conversation made David's face pale. Frank felt shivers run through his spine. Frank didn't have to hear the conversation on the other end of the line. David's expression and green complexion told him more than he wanted to know. Sir, I'll call you back before close of business today. Yes, sir. I'm sure I can reach him. No, sir. There's no reason to delay. I'll call you back before lunch. David hung up the phone and sank into his seat with a deflating exhalation of breath. Frank glanced at his watch and made a mental note that it was almost 11 o'clock. Whatever needed to happen in the next hour wasn't the kind of thing that typically followed a Monday morning case review in the prosecutor's office. David wiped his brow before speaking. That was the United States Attorney General, he said distractedly. Frank's stomach sank even lower and the acid churned all the more. Edward Garcia? The one and only, David replied. He called it the urging of the president, who apparently just discovered upon his return from China that his personal savior, Donald Beck, pled guilty to possession of a controlled substance and to the assault of a law enforcement officer. He demanded that Garcia get him the details immediately. The message has been formally passed down the pipeline, and we have one hour to produce our paperwork. David's glazed eyes fixed firmly on Frank. The president wants a detailed report on the case file. He has demanded that Garcia conduct a de novo review 
of the entire matter and meet with him at the White House today. Garcia wants my files, and he wants a statement from Beck's counsel, you, detailing the extent of our investigation into the charges, along with correspondence detailing the plea agreement. We have one hour to get it together. Frank felt his body crash. His bowels started to loosen as his body began to tremble. The sensation that he was going to vomit, cry, or soil his pants swept over him like multiple tsunamis. I didn't, you know, I didn't even talk to him. I, we got him to plea based upon reports. I, I... Frank stammered without finishing the sentence. David's body shot from his chair like a bullet. Don't you dare start that we business. If you didn't do the job you were called upon to do, then you need to be man enough to own up to it. I want a report on my desk in one hour. David angrily pressed the intercom button on his desk phone. Janice, I need the prosecution file on Donald Beck right away. The two men listened to Janice's mumbled reply and stood silently for a couple of beats through the ensuing dead air after she disconnected. Janice set out to retrieve the file. We have one hour, David ordered Frank, punctuating the order as his finger jabbed the air. Frank slithered dejectedly from the room. As he stumbled numbly toward his newly decorated office, he realized his days at the prosecutor's office were numbered. His only hope would be to prepare an honest account of what he did and didn't do on Donald Beck's behalf. Afterwards, his only hope was that he would be permitted to continue practicing law in the federal courts when the dust finally settled. With the determination of a drowning man swimming for a distant shore, Frank locked himself in his office and set about preparing a narrative that he knew would likely end his current career, but maybe save his career as a lawyer. Chapter 54 the only light that illuminated their cube came from the fluorescent tube lights in the corridor. In the shadows, Donnie and Jackson thrusted and parried with towel-wrapped broom handles that were commissioned as bow staffs. Each man was keenly aware of the other's physical location, and thus both men effectively anticipated the next thrust. Every peripheral sound was swallowed by their intense concentration, so much so that the customary background noises in the unit seemed to disappear. Even at half speed, Donnie was astounded at how quickly Jackson was absorbing the training. Perhaps it was the sharpened focus, or maybe just the innate warning system in their collective subconscious, but they both heard the telltale jingle of keys approaching the room at the same instant. The broomsticks went to the corner behind the bed in one deft blur of motion. The men began moving through the darkened room to their bunks, as a hulking shadow filled the opening in the hall. What little light there was in the hallway seemed swallowed by his presence. What's going on in here? Donnie recognized the CO as the muscular lieutenant that he'd first encountered when he was in process. The one Rambo called for help. Donnie knew his name was Dooley. Jackson responded with cool quickness. We were just climbing into the rack. Uh, why, is there a problem with that? No. Not if that's what you're really doing. It's just a little early. I mean, even eight o'clock is early for you old white guys. But hey, I guess you need your rest. So you go right ahead and get to sleep. He poked a large, beefy finger in Jackson's direction 
to punctuate the statement. Then he shifted his gaze and his finger to Donnie. You bet. Pack your stuff. You're out of here right now. Out of here to where? Demanded Donnie. Anywhere but here. I guess you can go home if you want. We got an order that was faxed in from the Attorney General of the United States instructing your immediate release. So if you need to know anything more than that, take it up with your attorney. You have ten minutes to get your stuff together. Meet me at the control desk. Dooley didn't wait for a reply. Nor did he leave the room for more conversation. He quickly turned and disappeared the way he'd come. Donnie turned toward Jackson. He was stunned. What? He couldn't think of anything else to say. Jackson's expression was a tortured mix of bewilderment and anxiety. What nothing? Go. Don't look back. A mask of pain crept across his face. I'll find another way out. What are you talking about, Jackson? There's no turning back. You're ready to go. Whatever happens to me doesn't change that at all. You're on for Sunday night. I'll call Joanne and let her know what's going on. The relief on Jackson's face was obvious. I, I thought... Never mind. Look, Donnie, be careful. This could be a ploy. Keep your eyes open and watch your back. Trust no one. Donnie slipped on a ragged pair of sweatshorts and the black steel-toed boots he was issued after he came in. Everything in here is yours. Sell it or give it away and don't worry about me. I'll be careful. You can count on that. If there's any problems, I'll get word to Joanne. Donnie hugged Jackson warmly. You be careful too, brother. I'll get you a way to contact me, he whispered. As Donnie disappeared into the hallway, Jackson allowed numerous scenarios to play through his mind. The myriad twists and possible turns that could explain this crazy turn of events preoccupied him as he sorted through Donnie's possessions and stowed them in his own locker. Chapter 55 Donnie was processed out of the prison with uncharacteristic haste. In fact, the release procedure seemed so hurried it made him grow increasingly suspicious. Without consciously slowing his pace, he could feel himself becoming more and more wary. Dooley studied Donnie curiously. What's wrong with you, Beck? Don't you want to go home? This is all a little sudden and far too hurried. I don't know. It, it makes me nervous. Dooley breathed a heavy sigh and opened the folder that had been tucked under his arm since Donnie joined him in the control center. He casually removed the facsimile he received from the United States Attorney's Office. This is what we received at 6.20 p.m. You can see the time stamp on the cover sheet. It took a little over an hour to confirm and process you off our computer system. I'm in a hurry because I have to be in control for the next count. This is no game. You've been authorized immediate release. Donnie carefully read the facsimile, which stated that the Attorney General conducted a de novo review of the government's case and concluded that the level of representation by defense counsel fell far below the standard of effective assistance demanded by the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Accordingly, the Bureau of Prisons was instructed to immediately release Donald Beck, and the charges and record of any charges are heretofore dropped with prejudice. What does this mean? Dooley looked uncomfortable after Donnie's question. In fact, he was far too uncomfortable for Donnie. Dooley hesitated a minute before answering. 
When the facts came through, I ran it by our paralegal office. It means the attorney general looked into your case and didn't feel your attorney did his job. So they're letting you go. But with prejudice means the government can bring charges against you in the future if they want. Anger flashed through Donnie's eyes. So, when I step out the door, are you locked up again in two minutes? Dooley's jaw tightened and his eyes flashed in response. Look, Beck, this isn't my idea. I asked the same question. According to Bob Mason, the paralegal at the camp, there's no way you could have gotten a letter signed this evening and obtained a signed indictment on the same day. The grand jury usually calls it quits at 5 o'clock and this letter came out at 6 o'clock. You do the math. However, if I was you, I'd also think this whole thing looks stinky. So, if it was me, I'd demand my money from my commissary account. Then tell me you want to ride the bus. I'll get the town driver from the camp to give you a ride to the depot in the camp pickup truck. Then, if I was you, when you get to a stoplight in or around civilization, I'd step out of the truck and disappear. Tomorrow you can call your attorney and figure out what's what. As far as I'm concerned, you're a free man, and I don't have any problems treating you like a free man. Donnie studied Dooley's face for a long time. The rage was still smoldering behind his dark eyes, but Donnie extended his hand. Thanks, Dooley. I appreciate you shooting straight with me. I know who you are, Beck, and I'll be honest, I never wanted to believe that you was getting locked up. Dooley gripped Donnie's hand tightly. Take care of yourself and don't come back. If I have anything to say about it, you'll never see me again. Donnie smiled through his final words. Dooley withdrew an envelope from the folder. Your driver's license and release papers are in here. You had $234 on your commissary account and I took the liberty. It's in the envelope. The money on your phone will be sent to your release address in Massachusetts. Is that still a correct address? Donnie nodded, even though he had no intention of going to Massachusetts. Yeah, I just need a ride to the bus station, if you don't mind. Dooley smiled. No problem. Wait right here, and I'll have the driver pull up the front door. When you leave, don't look back. You don't have to tell me twice, replied Donnie. Four or five minutes later, Dooley gave Donnie a nod. Let's go. Here's the truck. Both men scanned the parking lot as they walked down a short concrete path to where the truck idled. Dooley opened the door and Donnie climbed into the seat. The driver was a youthful-looking man with a pale white complexion and fiery-colored short red hair. When Donnie studied the man's face, the mistake was obvious. The driver was probably in his mid-forties. Dooley nodded congenially at the driver. Merritt, this guy's an immediate release. Take him to the bus station and then come right back, understand? Merritt nodded and studied Donnie. As soon as they pulled away from the curb, the driver offered his hand in greeting. You're Donnie Beck. I'm proud to meet you. My name is Dave. Donnie looked at the man, surprised at his comment. He didn't respond. Merrick kept his hand extended until Donnie took it. We heard you were in the low, but I hoped you'd come over to the camp. I'm the town driver. As the two men broke their grip, the pickup truck paused at the stop sign at the bottom of the hill. Listen, Dooley's an R.A. guy. I know you don't know him from Adam but I deal with him every day. He just gave me some information. Donnie was staring at the man agape. What information? He told me you're a free man, which means you could go anywhere you want to go. 
my guess is you don't want to go to the bus station or you would not have said anything to me about the bus station. So I've got about five miles I can drive you. Then I'll have to turn back. They'll check my mileage when I return. Which way should I go? That way. Merrick pointed southeast. There's a truck stop that way. Merrick pointed northwest. There's a shopping mall that way. He pointed west. Is a bus station. What's it going to be? The truck stop. I'll get my own ride. You've chosen well, young Jedi, said Merrick jokingly. Just make sure nobody's following us. The comment was immediately sobering, and Donnie scanned in every direction as they drove. Merrick's conversation was friendly, but most of it centered around the story he would tell upon returning with the truck. Donnie promised to swear he was dropped off at the bus station. That's all Merrick really wanted to hear. When Donnie was out of the pickup truck, Merrick sped away with a quick wave of his hand. Donnie walked gingerly into the truck stop, still anxious and fearful that he was being watched. At any moment, he expected to be rearrested. It was less than an hour later he found a long-haul truck driver willing to give him a lift to Landover, Maryland. Donnie knew Landover was a suburb outside Washington, D.C., and excitement seemed to bubble inside him as he hoisted himself into the cab of the truck. Donnie was hours away from Celeste's doorstep, and it was the only place he wanted to go. Just the thought seemed to quiet and comfort the sense of dread. On the highway headed north, Donnie finally embraced the reality that he was free. The cool night air pouring through the window, the bellow of country music on the radio, and the general hum of the tires on the road never sounded so good. Donnie was going home for the first time in his life. Chapter 56 It was almost 11 o'clock when Donnie climbed down from the 18-wheeler across the street from the new Carrollton Metro Station on Ardmore Ardwick Road. The surrounding office buildings and warehouses were dark, except for the occasional hint of fluorescent lights and the soft yellow halogen glow in the parking lots. Donnie walked both warily and casually through the darkness and quiet silence toward the subway station that would take him into the city. He knew Celeste was somewhere near DuPont Circle, at 1900 R Street, and he was happy to see a color-coded route map on the wall near the fare card machines. Donnie spent a few extra minutes getting his bearings and trying to familiarize himself with the layout of the city. He heard the rumble of the train coming into the station with plenty of advance warning to make his way through the turnstile to the arrival landing. Donnie was relieved to find another map on the wall of the train. It helped calm him as he mentally ticked off every stop to the metro center at 12th Street. Nevertheless, the ride seemed interminable. Yet once he arrived, he realized that it only had taken about 20 minutes. However, in that 20 minutes, Donnie's anxiety was raging and almost out of control. What if they expected him to come to Celeste's house? After all, her name and address were on his visit list, and she was the only visitor he'd had since his incarceration. What if they were waiting and one of those surveillance cameras in the subway was watching his every move? Donnie's paranoia caused him to break out in a cold sweat. He decided to walk the rest of the way from the metro station. Once outside, he noticed a theater entrance across the street. Cabs were lined up in anticipation of a late-show crowd, so Donnie hurried across the street and jumped into the first car. Is there a fast food joint in Crystal City? 
The driver was a Middle Eastern with fluffy, gnarled beard and wildly disheveled hair. Yes, there's a McDonald's. Let's go there. I'll buy you something to eat. Then I want you to take me to Pond Circle. There are fast food places closer, the driver replied. That's okay. I need to kill some time. The driver pulled away from the curb without another word. Donnie watched for any cars that might be following, and once he was comfortable in the fact that he was not being pursued, he felt himself relax. An hour later, he was standing in the grassy expanse of DuPont Circle. Donnie carefully surveyed the area and decided on his best route to the street and the apartment building where Celeste lived. He walked casually, but his body was tense and ready. He allowed his eyes to scan while he mentally recorded data. Nothing seemed out of place or extraordinary. It was just after 12.30 in the morning. Donnie was across the street from 1900 R Street. The building was a 10-story, beige-brick apartment building that appeared to be 30 or 40 years old. The lobby security was dependent on the telephone handset with an apartment directory to announce visitors. Donnie watched several people come and go, but he was reluctant to approach the door. His assumption was that a camera must also be focused on the entrance. Donnie didn't want to risk any record of his visit. As carefully as possible, he worked his way to the rear of the building where he found what he needed to gain access, a dog walk area that was about 20 feet wide framed the rear property line along the service alley that extended between the buildings. Donnie hunkered down in the shadows behind the rear service door waiting for someone to exit. He would slip in once that somebody came out the door. The trick would be to move undetected despite the keen senses of the dog and the possible wariness of its owner. Donnie waited patiently. He used the long wait. In the intervening time, he let the myriad of events from the past several months play over and over in his mind, trying to piece everything together. His thinking felt clear, and every thought seemed to fall into one of two categories, deceptions or manipulations. He resolved that his days of being victimized were over. It was almost five o'clock in the morning before the door opened. Donnie slipped in uneventfully and let the door close behind him noiselessly. He started up the stairs. Celeste was in apartment number 803. Donnie trudged up the stairs quietly but effortlessly. The past few months of intense training and rehab were paying him a dividend. He rang the doorbell twice before he heard rustling in the apartment. A couple of seconds later, he felt eyes sweep over him as a viewer behind the peephole swung sideways. Then, a hasty unchaining and deadbolt manipulation followed before the door was frantically jerked open. Celeste was on Donnie without preamble. Her short nylon gown rode high up on her thighs as she reached around his neck. Her hair was rumpled from sleep, and her unwashed face was still creased from the pillow, but she held him as if the possibility of the stream would end was more than she could bear. Donnie walked her into the apartment and closed the door behind them. They sank to the floor together. Donnie felt Celeste's body quaking with either fear or excitement. How? She mumbled against his chest. They released me last night, but I think it's a trick. Celeste studied him with concern. Let me get dressed, then I'll make you something to eat. I want to hear all about it. Celeste turned and began to walk toward the bedroom. Donnie stopped her with a comment. I didn't forget. Forget what? She asked quizzically. 
I want you to marry me. I meant it. I just need to make sure I'm going to be able to stay out of prison and take care of you. He replied, smiling broadly. Celeste was shocked, speechless. I told you two weeks ago that one day I'd wind up on your doorstep and ask you to marry me. I was serious. But first, we have to find out what's going on. She didn't reply. She turned away tentatively and disappeared into the bedroom. A few minutes later, when Celeste emerged, Donnie was stretched out on the couch, sound asleep. Celeste closed the blinds and quietly turned out the lights. When the room was dark and silent, except for the general heavy breathing of Donnie's slumber, Celeste slipped into the kitchen and made coffee. She forwarded the phones to her answering service to avoid any calls, then sat in the stillness of the small, galley-styled room to try and understand Donnie's release. The next few steps they took would likely determine if it was permanent or not. Celeste had only one objective. That was to ensure Donnie stayed out of prison. In the quiet, she racked her brain for people who might be able to help. Keep watching for episode 5.